God is the great I am. I spent two days at GLS and watched a bunch of speakers who are really good do some things. And I was like, man, I want to try that. So turn to your neighbor. This is a trick I saw. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is good. Turn to your other neighbor and say, all the time. All right. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. And this was years and years ago when the best mode of transportation was a sail ship, was a sailing vessel. And he was on this ship, and they were sailing through the seas, approaching China. Now, the fastest route for them to take to get from where they were to China was to go near these islands that were known to be inhabited by tribes of people who we would call them cannibals, um, who were not nice to people who ended up on their shores. And as they were passing these islands, the worst thing that can happen in sailing happened. The wind disappeared. The seas became perfectly calm. Now, Pastor Walt talks about sailing, and every time he talks about sailing and gives illustrations of his sailing as a young man growing up, I have to say I'm a little jealous. Those years I spent in Kansas. Um, Kansas has water, but it's usually mud colored and certainly not an ocean. Kansas does have wind, though. Lots of wind in the Midwest, and I grew up learning to sail a Hobie 16 and loved it. Catamaran, um, I so wanted to show you a picture, I just decided not to, of me hiked out, standing, I'm strapped in with a trapeze, strapped on to a wire that attaches to the mast. I'm standing on the edge of the boat, and if only I had a wire, I would lean back and demonstrate. But just imagine I'm connected and able to stand on the edge and lead out over nothing. It is one of the coolest experiences in sailing. And any of you in here who think sailing is boring, I bet I could get your adrenaline pumping through sailing just about as much as almost any other thing. Maybe not skydiving, but just about. Sailing also has the most peaceful thing when there's a light breeze or no breeze at all. On, this, on the Hobie Cat, when I worked at summer camp, and I got in situations like that, either two things happened. I would make the campers who were on the boat with me crawl out on the pontoons and lay on their belly and then start to swim. So they became my engine. Or I would frantically call for a jet ski to tow us in. And that's where Hudson Taylor and his ship were found that day was the currents of the ocean pushing them towards shore with no wind whatsoever. The captain of the ship comes in and asks Hudson to begin to pray for wind. The captain knows that Hudson is a missionary, is a believer. The captain is not quite convinced, is in fact probably very much unsure, and goes to Hudson and says, you must begin to pray for wind. We are drifting perilously close to shore. 
the response that the captain got was not what he was expecting. He was expecting Hudson to immediately say, oh yes, I will begin to pray for wind. But Hudson looked at the captain and said, I will not begin to pray until you have raised the sails and prepared to sail away. One of the stupidest things you can feel like when you're sailing is when you have all your sails up beautifully on your boat and there's no wind whatsoever. That is one of the most obnoxious looking things. You feel like you should just put your sails down and just wait for the wind to come back. But Hudson was like, no, you must put your sails up, risk looking stupid to anybody who's around before I will begin to pray. That right there is a measure of faith that I often feel that I do not have. A measure of faith that says, I know God will answer the prayer, but first I want to be prepared for that. The story finishes with the captain rushing back in asking Hudson if he's still praying for wind and if he is to knock it off because they have plenty of wind now and are in the other danger of being pushed ashore because they can't control the amount of wind that they have. The measure of faith that it takes to live a life of expectation. Today we're going to look at the next story in our journey through Matthew that brings out measure of faith in people. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. This is a well-known story. This story is found in three of the four Gospels. It's also found in Mark and Luke as well. But the story of the interrupted faith journey, if you will. So Matthew chapter eight, chapter 9, verse 18. And we're just going to kind of work through this passage together today and look for what we can learn about the faith journey of these two individuals and how it can apply in our lives today. The Bible says, While he spoke, he being Jesus, spoke these things to them, them being the group of John's disciples who had come and asked Jesus about fasting. Them being this group, a large crowd that always gathered when Jesus arrived as he had crossed over the shore from the healing of the demoniac and crossed over the Sea of Galilee back to his home area. This group had gathered around gathered by the sea. He was doing healings. And while he's at, at a home, this group of John's disciples comes and says, we're fasting and the Pharisees are fasting, but your disciples aren't fasting. And so they're having this talk. And we looked at that last week about Jesus talking about, well, they're here at the party. They are not going to fast when they're at the party, essentially is what he's saying. And he goes on to talk about patches and shrunken clothes and new and old wineskins with new and old wine. And while he's in the middle of that, this ruler comes and worships Jesus. 
So while he was speaking these things to these disciples about enjoying being in the presence of the bridegroom, a ruler, or from some of the other gospels, we learn that this ruler was in fact a synagogue ruler. A One of the, the Jewish leaders who was in charge of a local synagogue, who was a part of a group that on the whole, most of them disliked Jesus. A part of the group that was working to undermine Jesus. And this ruler comes into this crowd with a desperate question. My daughter just has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. This is not the first time a ruler has come to Jesus asking, intervening on the behalf of somebody else who is sick and close to death, is extremely slick, and they think she's died or has already died. The, it's unclear exactly where she was because some, some texts translate that, that she's already died. Some say she's just died, but that's, that's a detail. That's not something to get caught up into because whatever the case is, we know that she is on her last leg. Maybe not even on her last leg, but the end of the last leg, and she is near death. And this ruler, this synagogue ruler, comes into this group. And the Bible says, depending on which version you have, he knelt down or he worshipped Jesus. I contend that this would have been quite the humiliating last resort move for this guy who was a religious leader to come into a group of people and humble himself to the point where he worships the one that they despise, the one that his peers despise. But yet he knows that there is nothing, no other option at this point. And he comes and worships at the feet of Jesus, humbling himself. One point we can learn about faith from this. Our faith is personal, but our faith is not private. Our faith is personal. The faith that we have, the faith that we, we strive to understand and grow in with the help of Jesus, that faith is a personal thing. We talk about it all the time, about spending that personal time with Jesus, about getting into that personal relationship with God, about understanding and growing on a daily basis. But our faith, is personal, but not private. We cannot expect that when we have a relationship with Jesus, that is, it is going to leave us in places where we can just go about one hour in the morning, taking our time, and then going out and doing work for God. I know at, at GLS, a lot of stuff is going to come from GLS a little bit because, like I said, the 16 friends from Grace Point and myself 
who were there have been drinking from a fire hose for two and a half, for two days. And um, I'm sorry, I just was thinking, is my sermon that boring that crickets are chirping? My goodness. <laughs> sorry. Anyway. All right. Anyway, that's what was going through my head. I have no idea where it's coming from, and nor am I trying to ridicule. It just was like, that's what I was thinking, so I thought I would share. All right. Um, GLS, yes, faith, private, personal. One of, the, one of the speakers that was there, one of the business leaders, um, whose name I can't remember, Angela something, she is the, one of the vice presidents at Apple. She's in charge of all of their retail stores, their real estate, retail stores, and online stores. So if you've ever bought anything at Apple, she's been a part of making that happen. And she, she's the director of that. I would say one of the most powerful leaders in business, I mean, because we know Apple controls the world. Apple is seeking to take over the world, and we had people talk about that and how that's a good thing for business, and I, won't, I agree. That's a, don't, set your, don't set your sights low. Shoot high. But this lady, this leader, this businesswoman, in front of, I don't know how many people show up in person, but 4,000 or so people maybe in person and maybe another 100,000 people across the world who tune in um, to watch this via satellite. In front of all these people, she spent time talking about the most important hour she spends with God in the morning. And while I will admit my skeptic Christian, but that's... Is that really what Christianity looks like? I mean, can you do... do well, I, I, I put that aside for a second, and I appreciated the fact that this lady in business was not afraid to, in front of business peers, whether they believed in Christ or not, say that the most important hour of her day is the day she spends in meditation, reading, and prayer. Her faith is personal, but it was not private. This ruler that fell at Jesus' feet was willing, maybe driven by the desperation of losing his only daughter, the Bible tells us. This is his only daughter. And that desperation has driven him to be able to walk through the crowd, fall at the feet of the enemy knowing from the stories he's heard before that this man is the only hope he has. His faith drove him him to be public with it. His desperation drove him to be public with his faith. So Jesus, continuing in verse 19. So Jesus arose and followed him. Now, think about this. If we just kind of take the scope of the gospel stories that we know, one story comes to mind when I read this passage of the time when Jesus heard the request but yet sat still, and that's the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, his people come, his, Lazarus' friends come and say, Jesus, come quick, he's dying. Jesus stays put for three days. But in this case, Jesus arises. 
gets up immediately and begins to walk the short distance from where he was to the home of Jairus and where his daughter lay dying or dead. It's interesting to note, though, that the faith that is required, the sacrifice in our personal humility that is required sometime is equal across the board. This man was a ruler. He was, he was in charge. He had, he had wealth and prestige and power in this town. If you think back just a chapter ago, right after Jesus comes down from the mountain, he may, meets the leper who does the exact same thing, who comes to Jesus and falls at his feet. The Bible says, knelt at his feet or worshiped at the feet of Jesus. It does not matter our place or position in life. Our faith demands that we are put upon a level playing field because with God, we are all equal and our faith and demands are not dependent upon the depth that we have sunk to. The faith is not dependent on to the measure that we need to be brought up. Our faith is not dependent on any of those things. Our faith just requires that we come to Jesus and fall at his feet. So Jesus is walking with his disciples. His disciples, who I imagine, are a little bit miffed. They're a little bit frustrated because here is this uppity up, this haughty leader that's come in that they've already can tell is a part of a group that's causing them great problems. And Jesus instantly gets up from leaving the house of their own, from leaving their home and going to the home of this enemy. The disciples get up and follow Jesus. And as we know, when Jesus is going places, the crowds moved along. And this is that famous story where on the way, on the short distance to heal this man's daughter, the joy that must have filled his heart when he saw Jesus respond to his request. The joy that must have said, Yes, my faith is paying off. Jesus is coming with me. Is interrupted when this, when somebody, he doesn't know who, when somebody touches Jesus and causes Jesus to stop. I want to talk a little bit about this woman. This woman who had an issue of blood, as we like to say, that would have made her unclean and cast out from society. Not quite to the point of a leper, but still someone who was cast out and alone. I want to talk about that person for a second by telling you a story of this time when I got my first home. Not my first home that I owned, but when I moved into my first house in connection with my first real job. I had just gotten my first job as a pastor in the booming metropolis of Enterprise, Kansas. Um, we could, I'm sure if you just think Star Trek, that's good. Um, um, Enterprise, that's probably the best correlation to it. Enterprise is a no-stoplight 
you know, five stop sign town kind of a thing um, that where the boarding academy for our conference or for our one of the boarding academies of our con- conference was and I was going to be pastor. And one of the things that they had there was a parsonage, a home that was there so that I didn't have to worry about finding a place to live. I could just come in and move into this house. Let me describe this house for you. It was made for a family of 20. It was a ranch, it was a ranch style home. I'm single at this point. I'm not single now, although I may be after that comment. Um, this home was built for a family of 20 or so. It was a ranch style home, which means it was kind of one giant floor on the top and then the basement was just as big. I miss most out here on the West Coast are basements. Not many basements out here, but this house had a basement. So upstairs, there was three bedrooms and two bathrooms, a big living area, a dining room, and a kitchen and a garage. Okay? Let me just reiterate, my first job out of college, and I'm single. I fit into the one room that I lived in. Um, All of my stuff, I had to go beg, borrow, not steal, but just beg and borrow. Um, The people were nice, and they gave me stuff, so I didn't have to take it. They, they, I filled my my house with old wicker furniture and 1970s brown floral print wood furniture with cushion. I, I mean, it was it was it wasn't pretty at all, but it was something to sit on and remember. I'm single, so I don't care. Um, brown just hides more of my food stains, so I can just you know whatever. Anyway. So I'm in this house downstairs. You go down to the basement. There is a giant open space down in the basement that's bigger than any of the open spaces upstairs. Underneath the garage area and the the kitchen area, there's a storage room that somebody had used to keep their pets in and it smelled something awful. I never went in that room. There were also three other bedrooms downstairs. So if you're counting, that's seven rooms in this house. Okay, seven rooms and a bathroom downstairs. So I had no need to go downstairs ever. And so I'm living here in my first home, learning the things that happen in a home. I slowly begin to notice that sometimes when I walk in the house, I'm like, whoa, that's a little stanky. Uh, It doesn't smell pretty. And I would walk around and kind of sniff and be like, eh, whatever. And after about two minutes, the smell would kind of just go away. And I was like, I can live for two minutes with this smell if it goes away. And so it did. And so for probably three weeks, this happened. When people would come over and they'd walk in and kind of get that wrinkled nose look, I would just be like, don't worry, it goes away. You know, when I had kids over for Vespers or something, be like they wouldn't even notice. Uh, that was meant to be like their room stink. I don't know. Anyway, whatever. High school kids. For three weeks, I lived with this smell until finally I decide, you know what? In no correlation to the smell, I was just like, I should go back downstairs and explore downstairs. So I walk downstairs. I open the door. And I discover a source, or at least a path leading to a source. Because suddenly I'm like, whoa, there's a lot of smell coming up the stairwell. So I walk downstairs, 
And I'm like, wow, it really is stinky. And I'm not really paying attention. And I step onto the basement floor. And instead of that hard, just kind of, you know, solid sound, there's a little sound, a little, a little water sound. And so I look around. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of water down here. I begin to explore further. And I get to the bathroom, the downstairs bathroom in the basement. The stench is growing much more. And I open the door to that bathroom and discover three inches of filth. That's a good word. Of filth. Three inches representing three weeks of my sewer pipes being collapsed and all of my plumbing issues and usage had been gathering up in the basement of my house. And I learned something that day. You, if you don't know, I'm going to teach you something today. I learned why Roto-Rooter is in fact called Roto-Rooter. I didn't know this until that day when I called him up on a Friday night and he came out and kind of helped me out and said, well, yeah, we have to spin this through and cut the roots out because the roots come in and collapse your pipes. And I was like, why do we use pipes that roots can get into? But whatever. And so I discovered, I spent all night cleaning it up. It was pretty gross and had to preach the next day. Um, but I learned something. There are times when there are things that annoy us, things that offend us, things that get in our way that we just don't want to deal with, that we find that if we just ignore it for a little while, it will eventually fade into the background and we can forget it. And I often think that this woman felt like that, being unclean for 12 years, felt like she had been pushed aside to the point where people didn't even really notice her anymore. They just knew that when they saw that form, they would just step away and not even notice or interact with this woman anymore. Because somehow this unclean woman was able to sneak through a crowd to Jesus, whether she was disguised so that she could get close to this crowd without making everybody realize that as she was bumped between the people that they were becoming unclean, she was either disguised or they had just got to the point where they didn't even notice her as she walked up to Jesus, reached out, and just touched the hem of his garment. My question to you, are there people that we are treating like we treat the stench of sewage, sewage that eventually goes away? Are we treating people to the point where we do not see their issues or see them as a person anymore? We just see them as something to be avoided. Or maybe some of us in here feel like that person. Feel like we've been abandoned, ignored, put up with, and set aside. And this woman, in this desperate situation, at the end of her rope, comes to Jesus because she's heard stories of healing. If this could happen to the leper, if Jesus could reach out and touch the leper 
and make that unclean man clean. Maybe if I get to Jesus, he can do the same for me. And maybe I don't even need to talk to him. Maybe I can keep my faith and problem private. And maybe I can just slip through the crowd and just glance the hem of his robe. And maybe that's all I need. And she approaches Jesus and reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. The other stories talk about the response of the disciples when Jesus turns, stops, turns, and asks the woman or asks his disciples, who touched me? Because Jesus had been in this crowd being jostled back and forth, to and fro. Jesus had been being knocked around and touched all the time. But why could Jesus, how could he stop and ask about this touch where he felt something leave him? There is a lesson to be learned here. We can be in the presence of Jesus. We can be in the presence of Jesus, maybe even touching him. But if that touch is without faith, if that touch is without a heart that wants to be receptive, the power of Jesus remained in Jesus. When we spend time with Jesus, when we search for Jesus, we must find ourselves not just believing about Jesus, but we must believe in Jesus. The touch of faith. We must reach out with that faith and seek to touch Jesus. Seek to be like, there's something in me that tells me, Jesus, that you can help me. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to pass by. This woman reached out and touched in faith. The Bible says that at that very hour, at that very moment, the woman was made well. It's important to note that that word there for well, was made whole, was healed, is the same word for, that means to be saved. When Jesus intersects with our lives, it is not a casual event. When Jesus intersects with our lives, it is a on or off proposition. It is a zero or 100% proposition. This woman was not left to heal over time and to eventually become made whole again. No, the touch of faith in Jesus and the power that came from Jesus made this woman whole at that moment. She was saved at that moment. When we reach out in faith and touch Jesus, we are made whole in that moment. One of the questions I have with faith, though, is often how is it going to work? This man, Jairus, who had come and asked for Jesus to lead him away, was ecstatic when it worked, just as he planned. 
But then there was this distraction and word that his daughter died. We must believe that Jesus will do what is asked, but we cannot presume to know how he will do it. We cannot presume to know that if in our faith journey there is a bump in the road, that all hope is lost. The story goes on. After the woman is healed, Jesus walks to the house, rushes in, sends away the mourners, sends away those causing chaos, and asks the little girl to get up, and she does. As we sung earlier, in this story, death was a lie. When we intersect with Jesus, when we draw close to Jesus, when we reach out in faith and touch Jesus, death, darkness is a lie. My question to you today, my question to you today, what are we holding on to? Waiting for that moment of desperation before we give it to Jesus. What are we clinging to that we're waiting till just that last second to let go and let God intersect with our lives? You may be feeling today that your measure of faith is not enough. You may be feeling today that your faith is waning. But friends, if you're feeling that your faith is waning, if you feel that your faith is not enough, I have good news. Faith is faith. And Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. The faith that we have to approach Jesus, the faith that Jairus took to fall down at his knees, the faith of the woman to disguise herself and risk being ridiculed to go out into a crowd, that measure of faith, however big it was, was provided by Jesus. All she had to do was respond and say, I don't have it all figured out. I don't know everything, but I know that Jesus is the way. I know that Jesus is great. I know that in Jesus, death is a lie. Grave loses its sting. That healing happens. That there is salvation in Jesus. And you do not need to be a faith champion to experience that. All you need to do is have a measure and respond to that call of Jesus. What are we clinging to that we're waiting for that moment of desperation? I invite you to let that go now. In faith, reach out and say, God, in faith, heal me. In faith, save me. In faith, continue to work in my life because I want to be close to you. I want to know that heaven is real, that relationship with you is needed. The measure of faith is provided by Jesus, is perfected by Jesus, is authored by Jesus. We just need to respond and reach out 
and touch the great I am. Lord, we've been drawn to understand faith and we may be in a place where faith is lacking, where faith is a struggle for us, but may we respond to that in such a way that we can reach out and say, Lord, it's not about how much I know, it's that I just know that you are God. Help us to lay these things at your feet today. We ask these things in the saving name of Jesus. Amen.